Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we continue part two of the Bill Stout interview. You worked on The Hitcher. You mentioned the first Conan movie as well as the second one. Jim already covered uh, Buck Rogers, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Thriller music video, Invaders from Mars, Masters of the Universe. The list goes on, but I loved a lot of these movies as a kid. So the first Conan movie, I love the tone of it. It is my favorite one. The second one, although I wasn't into the tone as much, I noticed that the look of it almost seemed more Frazetta-ish as far as some of the designs in there. Were you responsible for uh, some of those designs that had a more of a Frazetta look to it? Yes. On the first Conan film, I was secretly teaching myself Italian because uh -huh. whenever Dino De Laurentiis and his people didn't want anyone to understand what they're saying, they speak Italian. So I wanted to be able to eavesdrop on that. They discovered that. They discovered I was teaching myself Italian and they thought that was a riot. They thought that was hilarious. But they also thought, oh, this kid's really serious. Yeah. And so they started grooming me to be a production designer without my knowing it. I designed about two-thirds of the second Conan film. Yeah, two-thirds of the second one, yeah. So I've got a very strong visual influence in, in that movie. Yeah, because I noticed that some of them straight up look like Frazetta art in there. And uh, I thought that mm -hmm. was really fascinating because the first one was more of a barbarian feel but the second one it actually had some Frazetta aesthetic to it so that's awesome that's basically from you then yep I was the guy who pulled uh, Grace Jones into the film to play Zula really okay tell us about yeah. that because I, I love Grace Jones especially the 80s Grace Jones period so yeah I was aware of her music and stuff and if you recall at the time in terms of skin magazines there was Playboy and Wii and Playboy owned Wii and there was Hustler and Chic and Hustler owned Chic magazine that was their cheek version of Hustler. It was a, a, a high-class skin mag. <laughs> and one issue, they had an incredible photo spread. It was Grace Jones and a white chick, both topless but in boxing trunks, boxing yeah. in a boxing ring. Uh -huh. And Grace Jones looked so incredibly feral in that and ferocious. My first thought was, she has got to be in a Conan film. Yeah. And she turned out to be terrific. She was really... Boy, really got into the part and was very believable as, as her character. That's amazing that you brought her into that film. That's awesome. Masters of the Universe. So I'm a big uh, He-Man Masters of the Universe fan in general. Tell us about your work with the Canon Films and the production design for Masters of the Universe. Okay. The first film I worked on for Canon was the remake of Invaders from Mars. It was script by Dan O'Bannon. It was directed by Toby Hooper, the guy who directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And Canon, that was a wildcat film company. <laughs> At the time I was working for them, I think the greatest number of films any of the big studios had in production was Warner Brothers had six films in production. And Canon had like 80. <laughs> it was, what I loved about it, it was similar to Roger Corman in that 
if you had an idea for a film, you were a young filmmaker, you could get an audience with Menachem, the president of the company, and pitch him and get a yes or no on the spot. You yeah. didn't have to go through the whole chain of underlings. You could just talk to the top guy. And if he said yes, you got your chance to make your film. You wouldn't get much money, but you get your shot. You make a movie, yeah. Yeah, I love that about those guys. They're crazy. So after In Bears from Mars, Bears from Mars, I designed all the Martian stuff, except for uh, the Supreme Intelligence, which was designed by uh, Stan Winston's crew. But I got hired to storyboard Masters of the Universe. So I, I started doing that. And the director, Gary Goddard, he and I just really hit it off. We had a shared passion for comics. He was a huge Jack Kirby fan. Yeah. We communicated in a shorthand that uh, other people on the film didn't have. If he told me, uh, Bill, this is great. Can you just Kirby it up a little bit? I know exactly what he was talking about. I didn't have to you know, have him explain that. Yeah, you spoke the same language. He had the opposite relationship with the production designer on the film, Jeff Kirkland. Jeff was this old English guy. And boy, he and Gary did not see eye to eye. Now, Gary is one of the best pitchmen in the business, one of the best salesmen I've ever seen. I mean, he was phenomenal. And one day, he was taking all the Mattel people, Mattel brass, through the studio where we were working, showing them all the progress on the motion picture. Yeah. And he saved the art department for last. He knew that would be the frosting on the cake. And those guys just started flipping out. They were just so excited and so impressed. And Gary finishes off this incredible performance presentation. And he turns to Jeffrey Kirkland for uh, sort of an agreement or acknowledgement. And Jeff's working on his board. He, he lifts up his head. He looks at Gary and looks at the Mattel guys. And he says, it's not going to be too fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Man, burst that balloon. And about a week later, I don't know who was mutually agreed, but anyway, Jeff left the film. He recommended I take over as production designer. Yeah. And it was funny because I was told at 10 a.m. that I was the new production designer. And by noon, I was getting congratulatory calls from all over the industry. Wow. And they knew about it. Before my own family even knew about it. It was like, you know, it's such a small type business. It's yeah. just, it's amazing. So I became the production designer of Masters Universe. It so happened that my pal Mobius was living in Santa Monica at the time trying to get a film project of his off the ground. So I was able to hire Jean to work for me on Masters. That turned out great. That was perhaps the easiest film that I ever worked on because the production was so screwed up. There's no way I could be late on anything. <laughs> Yep, trying, trying. You had mentioned Roger Corman a few minutes ago. I, I wanted to go back to your relationship with him and your work with him. I met Roger before he came to my class and spoke. He was incredibly generous to my students and, and very kind. What was it like and what were the projects you did with him? Well, Roger bought my first screenplay. It was a screenplay called King of Dark Planet. And I remember it was a sword and sorcery film. My first choice uh, for the lead was David Carradine. And David indeed got cast as the lead in the film. That came about because I saw an ad of someone looking for some screenwriting experience. He wanted to hire a screenwriter for a sword and sorcery film. And I called the guy up. His name was John Broderick. And John said, are you familiar with gore? And now I thought he meant G-O-R-E. Like, you yeah. know, gore. Sure. 
No, he was referring to GOR, which was a series of paperbacks by, I think the guy's name was John Norman. Uh-huh. And they're sort of a, a S&M sword and sorcery. <laughs> Combining genres. That's great. But I did not know that at the time. And I said, I'm very familiar with gore. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm a big horror movie fan. So I got together with John, and he started pitching me on this idea of – he didn't actually have an idea. He just wanted to make a sword and sorcery film based on the gore books. So I started uh, doing designs, and then I started asking them about the story. I ended up writing the screenplay. And uh, it was a very painful experience because I, I rewrote it oh, at least eight times. And each time I thought – when I finished, I thought it was perfect – but John would come through and he'd say, no, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. And he had a lot of experience in the business. But for me, it felt like I was flaying my own skin off my body in writing this. But eventually, yeah. I, I wrote it. And then uh, he said he took it over to Roger, but Roger passed on it. And so I forgot about it for a while. At the time, I was doing posters for Roger. I called up the art director. I said, I was just keeping in touch to remind him of my existence. And I said, so what's going on there? He says, oh, uh, Roger's producing a film called uh, Cane of Dark Planet. I go, what? <laughs> Have you got a copy of the screenplay there? He goes, yeah, yeah, actually, I got it. I said, okay, what does the first page say? It says, Cane of Dark Planet, original screenplay by John Broderick. And I go, and? He says, no, there's no and. So what? John has stolen the film from me. Wow. And Roger's a decent guy. I had to immediately call my check right away. He took it out of John's pay. Because John was directing the film down in South America. Uh-huh. And so I got this frantic phone call from South America, from Argentina, from John Broderick saying, what have you done? I go, well, I got the proper credit for my writing the film. And I said, how could you do that? He says, well, it, it's easier to sell a film if there's only one name on the screenplay, which is a huge lie. Uh-huh. You know? wow. So that was the end of my relationship with John, but it was the beginning of my relationship with Roger. And when the film was ready to come out, Roger called me and he said, I'd like to show you the poster. Oh, great. So I, I come in and there's a poster and it's David Carradine, you know, and a sexy woman and stuff. And Roger changed the name from King of Dark Planet to Warrior and the Sorceress. Uh-huh. And I said, uh, Roger, it looks great, but there's no sorceress in the movie. And Roger says, Bill, you've got to understand, by changing the title to War in the Sorceress, it allows us to put a sexy woman on the poster. Yeah, it does. That's funny. Draw, draw in moviegoers. Once we have their money, who cares <laughs> if there's a sorceress in the movie? That's hilarious. Yeah. Package it just right. So what else did you do with Corman? I did the poster for Up From the Depths. I did the poster for Lady in Red, John Sayles' movie. Oh, yeah. oh, sure. Robert Conrad as Dillinger and Pamela Sue Martin as the Lady in Red. Then I fell into doing stuff with the Dale Arrhenius family and Conan and all that stuff. And many years later, I saw that Roger was being presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award. So I thought, you know what? I think I was at Monster Palooza at the time. I said, I'm going to try to dash across town and just show my support for Roger. And so I did. I made it there on Tungle Film. I had worked on since working for him. You've been keeping track of my career the entire time. I said, Roger, <laughs> you're, you're wasting your time. There's, there's better things to do than to watch what I'm doing. Oh, that sounds like him, though. Yeah. What about Jim Henson, the never-made dinosaur film? Did you work with him? Did you know him directly? What happened was that Lisa Henson, his daughter, she wanted to make a miniseries on Cope and Marsh, 
two famous paleontologists who had a battle between each other over their lives. And so she was trying to get her father interested in producing it. So they went on vacation to the Bahamas. Uh, Jim's idea was to, he said, before I invest in this Copen Marsh movie, I want to do my third realistic Muppet films. He had done uh, Dark Crystal and he had done Labyrinth. Okay. And he was looking for a third project. And he said, I think an entire film with dinosaurs would be great. So they brought a whole bunch of dinosaur books with them. The research we do on the dinosaurs, whatever we discover, that can be applied to your Copen Marsh story. So they're going through books. They're on the beach. And their maid brings them their lunch on a tray. And she looks at what they're doing. And she goes, oh, you think those are dinosaur books? I'll show you a dinosaur book. And she comes back and she hands them my book, Dinosaurs, A Fantastic View of a Not Lost Era. She goes, this is a dinosaur book. And they started looking at it and they were amazed by the fact that it wasn't like any of their other dinosaur books. They weren't just portraits of dinosaurs. They showed dinosaurs living and breathing and, and doing stuff and, yeah. and everything. And then they looked at my bio in the back of the book they, and said, oh, my God, and he works in film. So Jim told Lisa, as soon as you get back to L.A., you contact him. And we'll start making our dinosaur film together. So they got back to L.A. And uh, Lisa set up a meeting between him, between her father and her. And I came in and basically the end result of the meeting is we should really do a dinosaur movie together. Well, we had two more meetings like that. And I could see nothing was being done. So for the third or fourth meeting, I brought in a treatment that I'd written. Basically the plot and story of the film. At that time, uh, they discovered that Lucas and Spielberg were making Land Before Time, which is actually taken from my children's book, The Little Blue Brontosaurus. Mm. And they lied to Henson and told him they would have their film out a year before his. So Jim didn't want to look like he was copying Lucas and Spielberg with the dinosaur film. He killed it because of a competing project, but then when he was about to go back on, he passed away. Wow, that's crazy. So I want to throw out a few other films that you worked on, and I want to know what you did on it and any stories you have in relation. Men in Black, The Muppets, Wizard of Oz, Pan's Labyrinth, Prestige, and The Mist. I know with some you designed characters and, and different, or some others you might have done something else. If you could just kind of run through those a little bit. Yeah, don't forget Predator. Yes. Predator, I love that. So Predator, I was called in by Rick Baker. All my early friends in the movie business were all makeup guys, Rick Baker, Rob Bottin. We just hit it off. So Rick called me and I was excited because this was my first big studio film. I'd been doing indie stuff prior to that. And I had a meeting with uh, John Vallone, the production designer, and with uh, the director of the film. They sent me the script. I'd read the script. John McTiernan, director of the yeah. film. I'd read the script. I said, you know, this is incredible. You're going to get two audiences here. And the director said, what do you mean? He says, oh, well, you're going to get the action adventure crowd. But the ending, the ending is incredible. With that ending, you're going to get a whole nother audience. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, the ending. You know, Arnold kills the predator. And he's looking at the carcass of the predator. And he's looking at it. looking. At it, he gets closer and closer. And he reaches down and he opens it up. And inside is this tiny, frail little alien. I said, what a cool commentary on man as a hunter who has to load himself up with all this technology and things to go big game hunting and everything. Uh -huh. I think that, that's just a fantastic ending. 
And McTiernan looked at that and opened a script. He reread it and he tore those pages out right in front of me. I said, John, what are you doing? He says, well, we can't have that ending. That would mean Arnold beat up a wimp. Yeah. That's wow. Interesting. Yeah. From, from that 80s uh, macho perspective, that makes sense. Yeah. So I ruined the ending of that film. <laughs> <laughs> on Men in Black, ILM had spent nine months on the big creature at the end of the film, uh, the creature they called Edgar. It's sort of like a praying mantis cockroach kind of thing that Vincent D'Onofrio turns into. Right. They finished all the animation and everything and then showed it to Spielberg, and Spielberg said, hmm, not scary enough. And they freaked out because they spent all this time, and now they're running out of time. And one of the guys there said he really loves stout stuff, call stout. Well, I was working for Spielberg at the time, designing a series of uh, arcades called Gameworks. And I get a call from ILM, and they describe the problem they're having. They said, could you redesign the creature at the end of the film, but not too much? Just make them scarier, because we don't want to start from scratch. And I started doing sketches while I was on the phone. The next day, I, I faxed them uh, drawings, my redesigns of the creature and stuff. They went with it. Let's see, Muppets, Wizard of Oz. Muppets Wizard of Oz was directed by a friend of mine, Kurt Thatcher, who also is a collector of my work, and a great screenplay. Both Kirk and I really wanted this to be a theatrical release, but uh, they insisted on it being uh, a made-for-TV movie. But uh, I'm a huge Oz fan. I've got all the original illustrated Oz books. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about Oz a little bit later. It was fun to take those Muppet characters and cast them as the uh, Wizard of Oz characters. Yeah. What about Del Toro? Was Pan's Labyrinth the only thing you did with him? Yeah, that was the only film I've made with him. The way that came about was uh, Guillermo and I have all these friends in common. They all kept saying the same thing. Bill, you got to meet Guillermo. You too. You'll hit sure. it off like two shoes in a pod. But we kept missing each other. Well, Frank Darabont is another collector, a friend of mine. He's a film director who directed Shawshank Redemption. And every year at Comic-Con... Frank would host a big dinner for all his favorite artists and occasionally include a couple of film directors. And one year he hosted the dinner and he sat me opposite Guillermo. So that's when I first got to meet Guillermo. Uh -huh. Guillermo came by my booth the next day and he bought a couple of pieces of mine. And he said, would you mind delivering these to my home? I've got something I'd like to talk to you about. So I said, sure, I don't mind at all. I drove over to his house, and he, he showed me his spectacular collection, which I'm sure probably just a fraction of that collection, because I, I saw the, the gigantic show of his collection at uh, the L.A. County Museum of Art, and it was unbelievable. Yeah. He starts to tell me about the story that he wants to make as a film, and it's, it's the story of Pan's Labyrinth. And he would like me to work as a designer on the, the creatures. And in the middle of this, he gets a phone call. And he says, oh, excuse me, I, I have to take this call. And I hear his end of it, which is, oh, hello. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. That, that's really incredible. Oh, I, I feel so honored. But <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to have to pass on your offer. I need to make my little Spanish film now. And he hung up. And I go, Guillermo, what was all that about? He said, oh, that was Warner Brothers. They just offered me Harry Potter. <laughs> Wow. I went, oh, my God. My esteem for him just shot sky high. What, that this guy blew off the Harry Potter franchise to make his little Spanish film told me so much about who he was as a filmmaker. Yeah. Maybe his best film with that. So it was, it was the right decision. And we were just hoping beyond hope that 
oh, please just let it get one Oscar nomination for best foreign film. Well, I got four nominations and won two Oscars. So yeah. we were really thrilled and excited for Guillermo. Yeah, sounds like it was the right decision. Also, Prestige. Prestige, that was an interesting thing. It was Christopher Nolan film. And yeah. about two rival magicians who descend into insanity in their feud, played by Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. And so he wanted late turn of the century or 1900 style magic posters for use in the film, not actually to promote the film, but for use in the film. There was a scene that was cut from the film where one of the magicians is at the printers and they're pulling the, the prints off the lithography stones and holding them up and showing their poster for their next event. Uh-huh. So I did uh, three fake 1900 style movie posters and Nolan said he wanted the posters also to reflect the magician's descent into insanity. So the first one I did is Hugh Jackman and there's all these little frisky mischievous devils around him and stuff and it's very sort of light but also looking of the time. The final poster I did of Christian Bale is Bale is looking up into the universe and there's a bad omen of a shooting star and there's a gigantic skull in space behind that. That's what happened with those. And what about The Mist? That was made by Frank Darabont. It was another Stephen King adaptation, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, with Thomas Jane as this movie poster artist who is actually, if you look at the movie posters he's working on, they're all drawn by Drew Struzan, who is the movie poster artist of our generation. And so a chance to work with Frank. And uh, the first day I did a bunch of designs of the monsters based upon the short story that Stephen King had written and uh, sent those over to Frank. And the next day I got diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so that meant, uh, you know, I I couldn't stay on the film, but they pretty much made those big spiders almost exactly like my design. So I can, I can see my influence in the, the, the creatures there in the mist. What about dinosaur in 2000? That was a funny situation in that I was approached originally in 1989. I got sent a script by Disney and I read it. It was all about dinosaurs, but something bothered me. And I realized, oh my God, this, I think this is the script to the Paul Verhoeven film that he was making with, who's the Star Wars animator. It'll come to me. So I thought this is someone else's project. And I'm not the kind of guy who steals projects from my friends or from other people that I know and and admire. I immediately called up the animator and I said, look, I got sent this script by Disney and I explained what was going on. He says, yeah, that's our movie. But uh, we came up with a budget of $80 $80 million to make the film. And Disney said, no way would we spend $80 million on a dinosaur film. So we've dropped out. He said, uh, go ahead and do the film with our permission. And so it sounded like they wanted me to start on the following Monday, but then Monday I didn't hear anything from them. And then I didn't hear anything for a year. A year later, Disney contacts me. We've got this film. We think you'd be perfect for it. And they sent me the script. It was the same script. They did this to me every year for about eight years to the point where I'm just like, yeah, yeah, it's the same. Yeah. Yeah. And then one year they said, no, we're really going to make it this time. We're really, really, really going to make it. We're having the uh, attorneys work on your contracts and stuff as we're speaking right now. And we really want you on this film. And again, they made it sound like I was going to start Monday and then didn't hear anything from them. And about two months later, I get a call from one of their attorneys. He says, look, we want you on this film. We're trying to get you 
on this film, but uh, there's a problem that you insist on working at home, which I had never insisted on. I said, well, I can work at the studio. And they said, you can work at the studio? That's great. We're going to push this right through. Nine months later, <laughs> still not working on the film, I get a call from a different Disney attorney. He said, I just want to let you know, we're, we're really close to having you on this movie. And I said, well, just, just to you know, alleviate your concerns, uh, I'll be happy to work at the studio. And they go, work at the studio? Unions would kill us. Can you work at home? I go, I can work at home. <laughs> Great. We're going to push this right through. So finally, it, it did become real. And it, it became a situation where I worked at home. I would design the, the characters and I'd bring them in every Friday and show the progress on what I'd done on the film. And the first problem that they gave me, I really like difficult problems. And this was a good one. It was, they said, Bill, we've got a whole family of iguanodons in this movie. And they've got to be really distinctive characters. But to us, all iguanodons look alike. Can you design these so that they're accurate, but at the same time distinctive so that the public immediately knows who's who? I said, I think I could do that. So I, I did. And, and they were so pleased with that, they had me design the rest of the characters in the film. Oh, that's great. Were you pleased with the film? Yes and no. Originally, when I started working on the film, I was working with Tom Enriquez, a really incredible, talented artist. And we were determined that there was going to be no talking in the film, no talking dinosaurs, no talking lemurs, none of that. So we wanted to tell the entire story visually. And I remember when I saw Jurassic Park and the first time you saw that big vista with the dinosaurs, my first impulse was, hey, just drop me off here. Disney had me going to different conventions around the country promoting the movie. And they gave me two video cassettes, one with the five-minute intro where the dinosaurs don't talk, and then the second trailer where the dinosaurs do talk. So I'd show the first tape, and man, you could feel it in the audience. People wanted to see that film. They wanted to see that film now. They were so excited about being dropped into the Cretaceous with these dinosaurs. And then I would show them the second videotape, and they would lose all interest. Oh, they talk? But Eisner insisted that they talk, so... He was the boss, he won out. But I, I would still like to make that with no talking. Mm. But I think the first five minutes, one of the best dinosaur films I've ever seen. Speaking of dinosaurs. Yeah, speaking of dinosaurs, exactly. So you mentioned uh, Byron Price earlier. And there's some points of uh, intersection because you and Steranko had some contribution toward Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've also both worked with Byron Price. So in 1981, The Dinosaurs, A Fantastic New View of a Lost Era, has been described as a book that started the dinosaur renaissance, the dinosaur appreciation renaissance of the modern age. So tell us how that came to be. How impactful was that? Tell us also about your relationship with Byron Price as well. Yeah, the impact of that was enormous. In fact, if you look on the last page of Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton acknowledges me as an inspiration for the film. So that came about because Byron Price was one of my regular publishers and he was visiting me from New York and he was at my studio. I had just completed a whole series of black and white illustration for my friend Don Glute for inclusion in uh, the Dinosaur Dictionary. Don had written a book, Dinosaur Dictionary, and since the publication of that book many years later, so many new dinosaurs have been found. Don felt compelled to revise the book, and his goal was to have at least one illustration per listing. Mm. So I agreed to do four, and that turned into 44. <laughs> and Byron's visiting me at my studio, and he said, uh, if you could do your own book on anything, what would you do? 
And I thought he was just being conversational. I actually, I had no answer for him. And he saw all these dinosaur dictionary illustrations laying around. He said, what would you like to do on a dinosaurs? I said, sure, that'd be fun. Forgot about it. Two months later, I get a phone call from Byron. Hey, we got a book deal. Bantam wants to do your dinosaur book. And suddenly I had this gigantic project dropped in my lap. Now, while I was doing the dinosaur dictionary illustrations, I thought, you know, this may be the only picture of this animal that the public ever gets to see. So it better be accurate. So I joined the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology and began to rely upon the greatest paleontologists in the world as the guys who gave me my feedback. This was before faxes. So what I would do is I would make Xeroxes of my pencil drawings and then snail mail them to the paleontologist, usually the guy who discovered that creature, and get his or her input. And then it would go back and forth until we were both happy. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the dinosaur book is there was so much new information coming out about dinosaurs that was not getting to the public, that they weren't stupid, that they weren't slow, they were fast. Some of them had feathers. They took care of their young. And so I thought it'd be a great idea to just combine all that new info into one source. And that was my dinosaur book. And from the moment that came out, I became the dinosaur man. Yeah, because, I mean, you've depicted dinosaurs in books, museums, it's actually a whole other career for you. And uh, what's interesting is your accuracy. And you mentioned earlier that the Kurtzman curse of needing to be accurate. And it's interesting to apply that to an animal that's not around anymore. So we have to have research. And you're always up to date on all the new research. And it's become actually a, a scientific uh, journey for you as well, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And the first museum show I was ever in was called Dinosaurs Past and Present, and I had 11 pieces in that. It used to be the biggest movie nut you'd never want to meet. I mean, I would see everything. I would go to film festivals. I'd go to movie marathons where you enter the theater on Friday and don't come out till Sunday. Mm -hmm. I, uh, walking up the sidewalk in Hollywood, and a friend of mine spotted me from his car and pulled over and said, hey, Bill, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm really excited. I'm going to go see this new movie. And he looked at me like I was some kind of schmuck. And he said, Really? Movie, man, two hours in the dark. He says, you could be having your own adventures instead of watching somebody else's. Yeah. And man, it flipped a switch on me. From that moment on, I scheduled an adventure someplace in the world every year. First was Galapagos Islands and Machu Picchu in Peru. And boy, it really feeds me as an artist to have these experiences, to go to different countries and different environments and things. And... One of my adventures, I decided I was going to go to Antarctica. Yes. And I had these big, beautiful photograph books by the greatest photographers in the world. They all said the same thing. Try as they could, they couldn't capture the color of what was down there because of the limitations of the chemicals and emulsions in photography. And I thought, well, I don't have that problem. Anything I see, I can put down on the paper. So I thought, this sounds like a great place to go for an adventure. So I went on a cruise ship down to Antarctica. Also went all over Patagonia as well. And I was not prepared for how spectacular this place was. And I thought, you know, I've got to do something to save and preserve this for my kids and my grandkids. Yeah. And prior to going down there, people say, hey, Bill, where are you going this year? And I'd say Antarctica. And they say, oh, man, why do you want to do that? It's just a bunch of snow and ice. Or, oh, make sure you take a lot of white paint. Right. So while I was on this ship, I thought, what can I do to change the public's perception that Antarctica is just a bunch of snow and ice? And I thought, I'll do an exhibition of oil paintings showing the rich diversity of life that I've discovered here in Antarctica. 
and do that as a one-man show and have that travel. The other instigation in this whole thing was I found out that the Antarctic Treaty, which protects Antarctica, was due to expire in 1991. And this was 1989. I thought, boy, if I don't go now, I mean, never get the chance if they don't renew that treaty. The treaty was an outgrowth of the International Geophysical Year, a year of international cooperations among scientists in 1958 and 1959. It was so successful that President Eisenhower did not want to see that spirit disappear, so he extended it by creating the Antarctic Treaty, which states that no country owns Antarctica, all wildlife is protected, there's no commercial exploitation of the continent, no mining, no oil drilling. All information is shared. Even at the height of the Cold War, the Soviets could come to any of our stations and look at what we were doing, we could do the same with them. So it was this little oasis of sanity at the bottom of the world. And so I went down there and I thought, I'll do an exhibition of painting of the wildlife of Antarctica and to make sure that every kid drags their parents to see the show, I'm gonna make half the show prehistoric Antarctica with dinosaurs. So as soon as I got back to LA, I flew to Dayton, Ohio, to the Bird Polar Research Center and got a crash course in Antarctic paleontology from uh, Dr. David Elliott. And I began doing the paintings. After the first five paintings were finished, I invited the director of the Natural History Museum of L.A. County to see them. And he looked at them and he said, Bill, you've got your show and we will travel it for you. Yeah. So it traveled for seven years. It was instrumental in getting the treaty re-signed to protect Antarctica for 50 years. But the unusual thing about that experience was I used to say I, I subscribed to what I call the pinball school of career planning. I bounce here, bounce there, bounce there. I go all over the place. I'm a production designer, art director, illustrator, painter. Well, when I was doing those Antarctic paintings, when I finished, I didn't want to stop. I had the sense of, you've come home. This is what you were meant to do. And so I decided to continue to paint Antarctica and uh, make a book, which when it's finished will be the first visual history of life in Antarctica from earliest prehistoric times to the present day. About that time, I found out that there was a grant that the National Science Foundation offers called the Antarctic Artists and Writers Program Grant. Every year, they pick one or two artists, writers, and photographers to go down to Antarctica. And so I applied for that grant, and I got the grant for the 1992 and 1993 season. Went down there, and I was living in Antarctica, two months based at McMurdo Station, the largest station in Antarctica, and two months based at Palmer Station, the smallest station in Antarctica. And I took uh, over 12,000 photos and brought back 130 field studies. Wow. And I needed to do paintings of Antarctica for the book. And I've, I've hit about 80. I've got 20 to go. But I saved the 20 hardest ones for last. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I'm sure you just get faster and better at it each time. So you're probably challenging yourself just as much each time. And it's probably just evolving as time goes on. Absolutely. And one of the things that's really helping, since I held on to these last 20 images as my last ones, prior to that, I painted uh, 12 murals for the San Diego Natural History Museum. Yeah. And uh, those were really ambitious. They include my largest painting, which is 14 feet by 34 feet. Wow. And it, it depicts the San Diego Bay two million years ago during a feeding frenzy. Boy, that's my favorite thing of everything that I do is murals. They're, murals, yeah, because they're so big. It's a, the scope of everything. Yeah. And plus, they're a great artistic legacy. They'll be up long after I'm gone. One of my big heroes is Charles R. Knight, who painted the murals for New York and for Chicago and painted our La Brea Tar Pit mural here. Yeah. And so it, it's carrying on that, that sort of legacy. Yeah, and it becomes a culture, a culture of that location, too. You become part of that culture. 
uh, like you said, as far as museums, Smithsonian Institution, the British Museum, Royal Ontario Museum, and the American Museum of Natural History. You've had a lot of involvement in this aspect of your life, very multidimensional. One more thing on dinosaurs before Jim goes close to the final section is uh, Universal was going to do a Jurassic Park uh, animated series in the 1990s. Tell us about that and what happened to it. Yeah, I got a call from Will Minio, who was working for the Universal Cartoon Studios. And he asked me if I would consider designing a primetime animated series for adults based on Jurassic Park. He said they wanted to hire me because I had more of a European comic style, and they liked that style. And so I began designing all that stuff. And they actually shot a beautiful trailer. It's an incredible trailer. I've got it on, on videotape. And they went to Steven Spielberg to show him to get his approval. And by that time, Steven had been so inundated with Jurassic Park stuff, he was sick of it. And he wouldn't even look at the trailer. And he just said, no, I'm not interested in a TV show. So that, that killed it. So that killed it. Talked just a minute ago about bouncing around in terms of your career and going from one thing to another. I'm going to do the same thing for a minute and cover a lot of things that I'm, I'm interested in that you've done. You had mentioned Oz, and I'm big Oz fan myself. What was the theme park in Kansas City? Well, man, that was uh, one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. There was a guy who wanted to build a Wizard of Oz theme park resort in Kansas City. And I got hired by Landmark Entertainment Group to be one of the key designers for the park. I designed uh, the Haunted Forest. I designed the Witch's Castle. And I designed uh, Munchkin Land. Oh, man. That sounds great. Oh, it was incredible. We had a Flying Monkeys roller coaster and oh, all kinds of cool stuff. I remember getting up to go to work and seeing my two sons. And I said, boys... They're paying me to design Oz. It doesn't get better than that. And it really was one of the best gigs of my life. But it turns out that the government and uh, atmosphere in Kansas is incredibly corrupt. The investor, they were bleeding this guy, I call it the death of a thousand cuts. Oh, you need a permit for that. You need a permit for this. You need... They're bleeding the guy dry to such a point where the governor of Kansas hey, says, stop, lay off this guy. We need this theme park. This will be great. And so they backed off for a while, but then they started coming back in and finally he ran out of money. That's just tragic. Do you still have all the designs? Although I thought the wisdom of having a theme park in tornado country was not real sharp. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you had to have it in Kansas. There's no way to, yeah, to not do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I designed it thing yeah you enter the park and it's it's 1900 kansas okay there's a little small town and and outside the small town is the gale farm you go through kansas and then step into the dorothy gale's house and uh, you're warned that a tornado's coming and the room starts to shake and starts to move and everything and, and the tornado hits and you're seeing stuff outside the windows and finally the house sits down and you go out the front door that you came in, and you're in Oz. And what they did is they designed the house so that it could rotate 180 degrees. And so you'd enter in, and during the, the oh. confusion of the tornado, you wouldn't realize that the house was turning, and suddenly you open the door, and you're in Oz, just the way it happened. That sounds fantastic. What a tragedy. It never came to fruition. You did some illustrations for some Oz books, too, didn't you? Yes, that was through Byron Price. They were officially licensed through the Baum Estate. 
and I did uh, Trouble Under Oz and the Emerald Wand of Oz. Emerald Wand of Oz is the one I did first, Trouble Under Oz. It was interesting in that uh, he sent me the manuscript for the first Oz book, and I read it, and I called Byron up immediately. I said, Byron, I'm not going to do this book. This writer does not understand Oz at all. It's This is one of the worst things I've ever read, and uh, that's it. Hung up. Uh, about a month later, he sends me another manuscript. He, he said, look, we took into consideration everything that you were saying and, and made all the changes you, you were asking for. Please read this. Well, I couldn't believe it was written by the same person. It was fantastic. The rewrite was absolutely incredible. And I found out later it's because it was written by a different person. Ah. <laughs> it, was written, it was written by Sherwood Smith. Sherwood and I were guests at an Oz convention in San Diego. And I approached her about that. I said, you know, I didn't know at the time that she hadn't written the first one. I said, I can't believe the difference in quality between the first manuscript and the second one. She said, that's because I had nothing to do with the first one. And I said, your manuscript, you totally got it. You, you understood everything that is Oz. And it was so inspiring. So we did those two books together. And then Byron was sort of operating a, a, a slight pyramid scheme and that he was getting paid money for some projects and then using that money to pay off somebody else. And well, he had been paid for my illustrations for the last Oz book, but instead of writing me a check, he used that money to fund something else. And not long after that, he died in a tragic accident. Wow. And so I never got paid for the second Oz book. The publisher wanted me to do a third Oz book, which I was, had been planning to do. I was actually, was going to do it as a tribute to Byron until I found out about the financial situation. The publisher wasn't going to pay me again because they'd already paid me, but I never received the money. I wasn't going to work on a third book without receiving the money for the second one, so we hit sort of a stalemate. Did they do the third book with somebody else? No. It got dropped. Mm. Now, besides the Oz Park, you've done designs for other theme parks, including things for Disney all over the world, right? That's right. I've designed elements of... All of Disney's theme parks, Euro Disneyland, Tokyo Disneyland, uh, Anaheim, and Orlando. Do you approach them differently based upon which location they're in, or is it something that could transfer to any of them? I always let the problem dictate the solution, and so it, it becomes a highly individual thing. Whether that can apply to being moved to other parks is sometimes it can, sometimes it can't but I always try to solve the problem that's, that's given to me in the best possible way. Were these specific attractions at the parks or go into a little bit of detail? For Euro Disneyland, I designed a lot of the uh, Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Ah. Anaheim, I designed a lot of Toontown. Also, I was the first designer in the Indiana Jones ride. Oh, for Orlando, I designed a whole series of uh, clubs. I designed actually... Uh, a major undertaking. It was the first project that Walt Disney Imagineering brought me in on. It was called Disney Island. Basically, their problem was Epcot, and next to Epcot uh, were these two huge hotels, the Dolphin and the Swan. When Epcot would close, then the public would go into downtown Orlando and spend their money at clubs and restaurants there. So they said, Bill, design us a place in between the hotels and Epcot that will keep people on property. It's got to have restaurants, it's got to have shops, and it's got to have clubs. And so that was a gigantic project uh, called Disney Island. And I worked on that for about two years. 
we had a gigantic presentation for Michael Eisner and for lots of other folks. I was told later it was the most elaborate presentation they'd ever seen at Walt Disney Imagineering. It had smoke, it had lasers. Wow. We recorded a soundtrack to it and everything. It was huge. And I think I gave that presentation about six or seven times. Uh, one time was just for architects. Michael Eisner had a, a real thing for architects, and he wanted to be close to all the greatest architects in the world. So he had us give the presentation to all these architects. One of whom was an architect named John Jurdy, who, oh gosh, he designed that shopping center in San Diego. It looks like an M.C. Escher design. Oh, yeah. Later, I was told uh, that uh, they were not going to do Disney Island for two reasons. It was over budget and no one would ever come to it. And I said, over budget? You never gave me a budget. Give me a budget, I'll work to the budget. <laughs> uh-huh. And they flew us down to Orlando to tell us all this stuff. And then I dropped a huge bomb. I said, not only that, I will come in under budget. I will do it, not in five years, I'll do it in two years. I'll make this place in two years. And that totally scared the hell out of them. Because all their projects were five-year projects. And I saw the way they worked. I saw they, they just padded time and padded time. And I, me being in film, I'm thinking, well, this is inefficient. This is inefficient. Yeah. I know who to hire to, to get this done. It'll, it'll cost a third of the price. And it'll cost, take a, less than half the time. And so, basically, they were afraid that I had just shown the emperor has no clothes, that they were doing all this stuff and making projects take too long and everything. I would have completely have disrupted their entire system yes. of chicanery. So that was the end of that. It wasn't quite the end of that. So I started working, years later, I started working for one of the guys, one of the key guys who I had hired for Disney Island. And he now had hired me to do these gaming arcades for Spielberg. And he mentioned uh, oh, the big shopping center at Universal, CityWalk. Sure. And he found out I had never been to CityWalk. And his jaw just dropped. We're going right now. I go, oh, sure, okay. I, I don't know why we need to do this so urgently. So we went up, hiked up to where CityWalk was. And I looked at it and I said, oh, my God. They yeah. built Disney yeah. Island. There were all my ideas wow. at University in CityWalk. That's what CityWalk is taken from? That's all. My island. And I found out, I said, who is the architect on this? They said, John Jurdy. I said, I pitched to John Jurdy. Wow. And as soon as the project got canceled, he took it to Universal and built it. Uh. And so it was interesting for me because, for one, they built it. They showed it could be done. Yeah. And Universal, they're way cheaper than Disney, and they still built it. And the other thing was the place was packed. They told me it would never attract anyone. And here it was, it was built and it was packed full of people. Wow. It was always packed. Yeah. And a couple of years after that, the LA Times ran a big article on John Jurdy about what a genius he was, an architectural genius and stuff. They kept mentioning CityWalk. And finally, I sat down, I wrote a letter. I said, look, this is the origin of CityWalk and sent it in. And the Times published my letter. And then it became this back and forth thing on the front page of the LA Times. Oh, wow. And Disney, at Walt Disney Imagineering, they were taking these articles and they were blowing them up wall size and putting them on the walls in the hallways so people could read these. And half the people were thrilled that they were finally getting credit for CityWalk. And the other half was pissed off. I had the nerve to take credit for a Walt Disney project because I'm not Walt Disney. 
Uh-huh. So wow. it was a funny And City Walk gets copied over and over. I mean, its influence yeah. is, is not just there, but if you think of the Kodak Center and other things, they incorporate lots of those visuals to other places here in LA as well. That seems to be a theme that's developing that people yeah. that people rip you off and you don't yeah, get the credit it's for it. A couple, it's happened a few times. Yeah, that's the business. Yeah, that's true. A couple of other things. Richard Matheson is one of my favorite writers, especially his Twilight well, Zone, but also too. I Am Legend and, and things. Talk about your work with him. Well, Mick Garris is a good friend of mine. He's a film director, but he also is, is a writer. And he had, uh, I believe he just published a book. I was invited to the book party for the publication of this book. And I looked at the roster of uh, writers this publisher had, and I said, wow, you've got some great people here. He said, boy, I wish uh, you'd get me to, you know, illustrate one of your books. You do really nice books. And he said, well, do you like Richard Matheson? I go, I love Richard Matheson. He's one of my favorite writers in the world. He's incredible. He says, well, nobody knows this, but he wrote a children's book. I went, what? Matheson wrote a kid's book? He goes, yes, the only one he ever wrote. There's some input by Charles Beaumont, too, in the book. He said, would you like to illustrate that? I go, are you kidding me? I'm starting already. <laughs> this is great. It was called Abu and the Seven Marbles. It was an Arabian Nights fantasy. God, we won a ton of awards for that book. But the best thing for me was getting to know Richard because we did book signings together. And he's the sweetest, nicest guy. We we would commiserate on all the times that both he and I had been stolen from in Hollywood. And... I remember at one of the signings, I said, so Richard, are you getting any uh, people wanting to make this as a film, make Abu as a movie? He goes, oh my God, I'm getting all kinds of people that really want to make this as a movie. And he said, but I tell him, I'll, I'll sign the rights away under one condition. You have to have William Stout as your production designer. I said, Richard, don't do that. Just take the money. <laughs> I'm fine with my career. I appreciate you know, you saying that, that it's a, it's a wonderful thing, and, and I'm really tickled and honored and stuff, but, <laughs> yeah, just get the damn thing made. Wow. It's never been made, has it? No, no. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful book. The illustrations are just, just lovely to look at. Oh, thank you. You got a lot of accolades for that. I did. Gold medals from the Society of Illustrators and all kinds of stuff. We'll go through some of the people like that that you were lucky enough to work with. Another one, uh, and you've mentioned being friends with him, but you did a collaboration with Gerard too, right? With Mobius? Yeah, it was funny. Scott Shaw, uh, boy, I guess this was in the early 70s. He had a friend going to UCLA who had a subscription to a magazine called Pilot. It was a French comics magazine. Yeah. And he said, you got to see the stuff they're doing in France. And he brought me over and I'm looking through these plots and I'm going, oh my God, the best Western comic ever made is done by a French guy. Yeah. And it was yeah. Lieutenant Blueberry yeah. uh, by Jean Giraud. He'd sign his name Gier on those. And he says, well, if you think that stuff's great, where do you see what he does as a science fiction artist under the name of Mobius? And he showed me that stuff. And I was like, holy cow, this guy is astounding and stuff. Jean made a trip to California, and I, I think he was staying at Sergio Argonis' house. And Sergio called me up and it, it had me come over and introduced me to Jean. And we just hit it off and became friends. So when I would go to Paris, I would see him. When he'd come to L.A., he'd see me. And we'd always try to look for ways to work together. And 
His agent, Jean-Marc L'Officier, I just love this guy because he was the most honest agent I've ever met in my life. And we hit it off because I love talking business. So I don't just have our business can be just as creative as our. Yeah. And so I was a skilled negotiator and so was Jean-Marc. And every time we would break through and, and get a new plateau or a new request or a new perk, we call the other guy and say, hey, we just got this. And so both of us were amping up our contracts together by trading information on what was possible. Yeah, the one awesome. thing I didn't get that was really amazing that I'll, I'll never get was Jean was hired to design an entire floor of a place called the Metreon in San Francisco. There's one floor for where the wild things are, Maurice Sendak, one floor is all Dr. Seuss, and I forget who the other floor was, but there's also a whole floor completely designed by Mobius. It was like stepping into Mobius's brain. It was absolutely incredible. And it was all sponsored and paid for by Sony. And Sony and Jean-Marc called me up. He says, Sony was so delighted, so happy with what Jean did. They bought him a Frederick Remington painting. <laughs> like, oh, my wow. God. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Jean-Marc called me one day. He said, we are, Bill, we are putting out uh, these Mobius comics, and we would love to have you involved. And I said, so tell me, tell me about the Mobius comics. He says, well, Jean has done lots of different stories that had never been published. Some of them are just in pencil form. Some are half finished. You get first pick on what to take from Jean and adapt. And so I found a, an Arzak story he had done. He had penciled. I think the first couple of pages and then roughed in two more pages and then just lost interest. So I took that and I finished the story. I made it an eight pager, did it in Arzak style and stuff. And it ran originally in black and white in Mobius comics and then in color in heavy metal. It's one of my favorite stories. Oh, that's great. And then the last one I want to mention is I have your 2013 Legends of the Blues book, which I got at a Comic-Con years ago. And I, I want to say how much I enjoy that. But now, were you looking at it as a sequel to the Robert Crumb book that preceded it? Here's how this came about. I, I told you I had prostate cancer. I had, I had surgery, and I was told it's going to take you two months to recover. And I go, nah, I'll be back on my feet in a week. No, it, it really took two months. But I'm not the kind of guy that can just sit around and not do anything. So I had the Robert Crumb trading cards, and I had all this free time. And so I made a list of everybody that Robert hadn't drawn. And fortunately uh, for me, he hadn't drawn the chess guys, Muddy Waters, Little Walter, Howlin' yeah. Wolf, and he hadn't drawn Robert Johnson. And so I was like, this is great. And so I made a list of 50, and I did 50 portraits that look like the Chrome trading cards. Just prior to that, I had done a, a gig for Shout Factory. It was 2006 was called the Year of the Blues in America. And so Shout uh -huh. Factory decided to put out these best of collections and they got permission from Robert to use his trending cards as the CD covers. But there are three people he didn't draw on and he didn't want to do any more. So they had me draw them in the same format. And I had so much fun. I continued to work in that format when I was recovering from my surgery. So after I finished the first 50, I called up uh, Dennis Kitchen, who's Robert's agent and an old friend of mine and head of Kitchen Sink Enterprises. And he was the original publisher of the trading cards, of Robert's trading cards. And I said, look, uh, what do you think? I told him what I had done. How about putting out a, a set of these as trading cards? 
And he said, Bill, you notice anything unusual about Robert's choices? I go, yeah, he did the really ancient guys, like Sun House and stuff. He goes, yep, public domain. Uh, he says, your stuff is much, your guys are much later. So you're going to have to deal with them or their estates and get their permission, get yeah. approval over the witnesses. And I go, oh, it sounds like a nightmare. Sounds like, a, I guess I just did these for myself. And Dennis said, well, would you consider doing them as a book? I said, wouldn't I run into the same problem? He says, no, a book is not considered exploitation like cards or T-shirts. A book is considered a benefit to the public, so the rules do not apply. Yeah. So I said, well, you're Robert's agent. You were his agent on the, on the collected card book. How about if you represent me on, on this? And so he actually got me the same deal with the same publisher. And so we contacted Robert, and Robert said, man, I can't wait to see what you do. So the book acts as a compliment to Robert's stuff. And I was having so much fun. I thought, well, I really love the British blues too. So I made a list of a hundred British blues players. Oh. And thought, well, I got to have the modern guys too. Paul Butterfield, Mike Bloomfield, Jimi Hendrix, Jack White, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, and yeah. so it, it's planned as a three volume set. And so during this COVID-19 stuff, I've been getting lots of work done in that book mm. on the second book. Legends of the British blues is let's see it's i've completely written it i completely penciled it completely inked it and i've colored 75 out of the 100 portraits mm -hmm. and so I've, I've been working on that that was such a total joy to research because prior to that i thought well british blues i know everything about those guys i know who the godfathers were and all this stuff i was so wrong in my investigation i found out all kinds of people that i wasn't aware of who were really key to starting the British blues explosion. So I think it's a book that will surprise a lot of people. There'll be the expected people like the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and the Animals and Van Morrison stuff, but there's going to be a lot of people in there that will surprise, surprise their readers. Nice. I can't wait for that because my seven-year-old is at home. We're going through an album each day and I'm talking about it. And we did B.B. Uh, King's Cook County Jail. And he said, it sounded like old people. And so we did Albert King, and he said, I like that a lot better. And then when I got uh -huh. to the White Stripes, he goes, I want to hear that again. And it's funny <laughs> how he's processing it. Yeah, that's cool. I took my sons to see White Stripes at a tiny club. It was their first gig in L.A., and it was absolutely incredible. Nice. Oh, yeah. No, I'm a huge fan of that. Just great. So one more question before we wrap up is, you know, you mentioned the COVID-19, how it's gotten basically forced uh, a lot of people to just stay indoors and work on stuff that's kind of within their personal sphere of space. You're talking about catching up on projects like the blue stuff. How do you feel? Because you've seen different industries, you've worked in different industries. How do you think this affects the pop culture industries like comics and movies will there be an effect or will everything basically just go back to normal after a while but what's your prediction on on all that i think nothing will go back to normal i think it will form a semblance of a new normal there's a lot of people because of all the shutdowns are losing their jobs and they will be entering different careers and we're not going to see them again in the film music or book publishing business the fact that Diamond shut down distribution of comics hit the comics world really hard. I don't know what the fallout of that is going to be like. The streaming of the movies has become very successful, and that's scaring the hell out of the theater owners. Right. Stuff will come back, but it won't come back in the exact same form that it was. Mm -hmm. There's been some um, broadcast from Jeppy 
that he's going to start renewing some distribution on May 20th. And I think it'll probably just depend on how tight each individual state is as far as what will be distributed. There's also, because Walmart's considered kind of that essential like location as far as groceries, then there's also some comics that are being distributed through Walmart to get to places. It'll be interesting to see what happens with distribution and this and how different arms of distribution and then digital comics will things shift to this traditional diamond to Walmart and digital. I don't know. It'll be interesting to find out. Yeah, it is. It's a really interesting time for comics. I consider this, up until the the advent of the virus, a, a really golden age for comics in that it's wide open now. You can do any subject that you want. You can work in any style that you want. If you want to do a comics that it's all done in pastels, you can do that. You can do oil paintings. You can do as traditional right. pen and ink or brush and ink. There's no that you can write compelling stories about being a hospital filing clerk. It's an amazing era to be experiencing comics right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. As far as artistic and what's possible for sure, because anyone can do anything. That's true. Oh, and some of the publishers, like First, Second, and some of the other children, the inroads into children's bookstores and what they're providing in terms of comic creators is just fantastic. I was just reading John J. Moose's children's book that he just did, and it was like, God, this is just lovely, lovely stuff. Yeah. You can do so much. Yeah, I did a story for my grandson's favorite comic, which is Spook House. That's put out by Eric Powell. It's scary stories for kids. Oh, sure. I thought I'd surprise him, and, and I, I did a three-pager for Eric that ran in uh, the second season of Spook House, and that, that was total fun. It's just there's some great, great, great stuff out there. And then I was at a show, and a, a writer named Franco dropped off some of his books. Incredible comics for kids. So I've been buying all those up for my grandsons. But uh, it's tough now that the local comic shop well, all the comic shops have been closed in California. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. There's something about that experience of going to one. It is a nice feeling. I for sure miss that already. So, well, this has been a really fun uh, podcast uh, at the Comic Book Historians. Thanks so much, Bill. You know, Jim and I are big fans of yours, and it's really impressive. It's almost like you were kind of like that quintessential West Coast person that his mind was open and that you just explored everything that you've just kind of had your mind on artistically, you never held back. You don't have walls. You continue to be a pioneer artistically. Thanks so much for talking with us today. It was a huge deal for us. This was a real treat for me. Thank you, Bill. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, that, <laughs> that diversity, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I tell my students, I say, look, if you want to become famous, do the same thing over and over and over. Doing what I did, that's the slow path to fame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It also makes you incredibly hard to collect because you never know where my stuff is going to appear next. It could be an album cover, it could be a book, it could be a film. You never know. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Jim and I are going to uh, talk to you about that Mark David Chapman stuff. Yeah. I prefer that path because I used to watch my friend Bernie Wrightson have to draw a swamp thing over and over and over. Yeah. And I thought, that's not for me. Yeah. Your mind is open. You're basically absorbing and producing from all angles. It's awesome. Oh, thanks. Keeps it fun for me, too. Each day is kind of new and exciting. 